Good morning, Salem family. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> book of Ephesians. I may have sung so loud a few minutes ago, I lost my voice. But my goodness, singing about come praise and glorify our God. And then moving on to the other songs that we sang where we were able to lift up our, our God was fantastic. And um, man, it's good to be here this morning. It sure is. I hope you wore your theological big boy pants today because we are going to dive deep into, uh, into a passage that is one of the most controversial yet, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful subjects in the entire Bible. I want to start our time this morning by reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. So read along with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, I'll pause there for just a moment. You might have noticed that those were the verses that we finished up memorizing this week. And you might also notice that <clears throat> I read along and I quoted a little bit. We're plugging along with memorizing, right? It's a good thing to memorize Ephesians. And, uh, and if you're not doing it, I want to encourage you to find a couple of verses here and there to memorize. And if you don't get it all down all the time, it's okay. Just keep working at it. All right, let's continue reading, starting in verse 11, where we'll start memorizing this week. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Father, we come to you and we ask that in these moments that you work as only you can. And Father, I come and, and I, I bow my knee to you because I know without a doubt that um, I am opening your word today in such a way that can be controversial. But Father, we want you to work and we want you to unify, and Father, we want for you to, um, to be the God that uh, in our lives and for us to see the God who created us, who gave us your word for us to look at, to understand. Father, we want to learn from your word today. We want to apply it to our lives, but show us, Father, because we don't have the ability, we don't have the strength to do it ourselves. Father, in all things, may you have the preeminence. May we put nothing Nothing above you. Father, we love you, but we only love you because you first loved us. And we thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place. And it's in his holy and precious name I pray. Amen. Well, I want to tell you from the very beginning here today that um, there's some difficult words that we're going to work through and uh, kind of some difficult passages. Look at verse 4. 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. Verse 11, he predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, those are some difficult terms for us to wrap our mind around, honestly, because for, for many of us, um, the, the idea of this doesn't really fit inside our neat little box of who we think God should be. The reality is there are some things about God that we will never truly understand. And from the very beginning here, I want for us to wrap our minds around this, okay? There are some things about God that we will never truly understand. We continue seeking him in all things. We continue studying. We continue pursuing. But God chooses sometimes to not fully reveal himself. I think about the Psalms when, uh, when, when David and other psalmists talked about the unsearchable nature of God. Maybe, maybe it's the unsearchable riches that we're going to read about here in Ephesians, the unsearchable knowledge we read about in the Psalms. That doesn't mean that God cannot be found at all. That simply means that all of God cannot be found. You see the difference? That does not mean that God cannot be found at all. That just simply means that all of God cannot be found. I think about Moses when he's writing the book of Deuteronomy, verse 29, or chapter 29, verse 29. Here's what he said. The secret things... You see, I emphasize that in this slide. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things, the revealed things. Folks, there's some things that God chooses to reveal to us as humans, and those are the things that we obey. But there's also some things that God chooses not to reveal to us. Those are the secret things of God, the secret things that only God understands, only that God knows, and we may not even in eternity fully grasp what those things are. But that's okay. Those are secret things. But those are the things that we are to trust him with. I think about the old hymn that, uh, that says, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. There's some things that are revealed. Those are the things that we obey. There's some things that are hidden from us, and those are the things that we trust God with. Now, I'll be honest with you, that's super hard for some people. And it's super hard for me sometimes because I, I want to be the kind of person who understands all things, who wraps my mind around all things, and only then sometimes do I feel like I can, I can fully trust or I can fully know. But how crazy is it for us to maybe believe in the existence of God, or, or maybe we take it a step further and in not only we believe in the existence of God, but we believe that he is the creator of all things, that life is only found in Jesus. But then we get to a little thing in God's word and we say, you know, what? I really don't understand this, God, why didn't you reveal this to us? And we choose not to trust him with that. How crazy is, is that? True faith is having the ability to trust in something that cannot be seen. And when we get to a topic such as the one we're talking about today, the predestination, there are some things about this topic that God has chosen to reveal to us, and there's other aspects that he has chosen not to reveal. All right, and when that happens, we approach God's word just like we do any other time, and we study it in its full context. We obey the things that are revealed. We trust God with the things that are not. We look at the totality of the Word of God. Now, as I approach this passage of Scripture today, I want to tell you that, that I do so with humility. And I do so with humility because I don't have all the answers. And I don't claim to have all the answers. But that's okay. I also approach this with humility because I understand the importance that this plays in the context of the church and how oftentimes it's such a dividing topic. And so we want to approach it in such a way where we are unified, not 
not pulled apart. And I want to challenge you today to approach this with the same level of humility and open-mindedness that, that I've got bringing to you. I also want to say that today we're going to approach this at the 30,000-foot level, okay? And next week and in weeks to come, we're going to dive a little bit deeper and talk about some theological terms, some doctrinal principles that help flesh this out. Today we're looking big picture, all right? Last week we talked about the saints. What are the saints? Who are the saints? We looked at the meaning of grace and peace from, from verse 2. And then we talked about what it means to be in Christ, okay? So then let's pick it up in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now this is introducing what Paul is about to talk about. He's about to share with the church in Ephesus a series of spiritual blessings. He's not going to share all of the blessings that come from being in Christ, but he's going to give a big picture view of the blessings that come from a relationship with Jesus. Now notice the last few words there at the end of verse 3. Here's what it says. In the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. That tells me that Paul's mind is not on earthly things. Paul's mind is on heavenly things. He has moved from the temporary to the eternal. He has moved from the earthly to the heavenly. And y'all, listen, as I thought about it this week, I, I, I kind of realized, you know what? If we're ever going to comprehend difficult spiritual concepts, then we got to be like Paul. And we got to move our mindset from the things of this earth to the heavenly mindset, to think and attempt to think as God thinks, to move from what we can see on this earth to the eternal, to the kingdom-minded person. All right, continuing on, verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, this isn't the only time that we find out that God knew us or thought of us before creation. In fact, I think about Psalm 139, and this is one that you know very well, um, it, where David just exclaims, he says, in essence, before, you, before I was born, God, um, you knew me. You are the one who in love knit me together in my mother's womb. You have written out for me every single day that I am going to be on this earth. That applies to every single human being. God knew us before the foundation of the world. It means that God had you as an individual in mind. That even before he created this world, he knew that you were going to be born. That's a pretty cool thought, to know that God loved us, he cherished us, he, he planned to redeem us even before the creation of the world. We'll get to that more here in just a couple of moments. Continuing on, that we should be holy and blameless before him, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, that's the aim of humans. That, that, that's, that's, that's the goal of humans, to be holy and blameless before a holy and blameless and righteous God. It's only when we reach that point of holiness and righteousness that we can have a relationship with God. We have to come. There's no other way to get to God except by Jesus. And what happens is, even though we are sinners on this, uh, on this earth, and even though we are believers, we're followers of Jesus, God looks at us, and He doesn't see our sin. He looks at us, and He sees the righteousness of Jesus added onto our account. So even though we do sin, and even though we are in this sin-cursed world, when God looks on us as believers, he sees the righteousness of Jesus on our account. We are holy and blameless before him. 
Last week we talked about the idea of being in Christ. We're a new creation. We're viewed by God as holy. We're set apart as holy. Continuing on here at the end of verse 4. Two words at the end of verse 4. In love. And I believe that it, it, it connects us with the, ver- the next verse, which is verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, predestined very simply means marked out beforehand. All right, that's what it means. Marked out beforehand. He marked us out beforehand for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In other words, it takes place through Jesus Christ. Now, let's camp out here on this verse for several minutes because there's a lot to unpack. If you look at the end of verse 4 there, the last two words on the screen, it's, it's uh, the words in love. In love. Never, ever should we forget that God loves us. He always has and he always will. John 3.16 is clear that God so loved the world. Right? That means everybody. There's no one that is excluded from the love of God. You continue reading John 3 and in verse 16, and, and you find that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, did you catch that? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. At other places in Scripture, we find the love that God has for all of the world and the salvation that is freely given to anyone who would believe in Jesus. But then we read a verse such as verse 5 there in Ephesians chapter 1, and, and it would be easy to get confused. Yeah, but, but, but God predestined us as believers for adoption to himself as sons. That's what we read right there. And how do you reconcile that? How do you, how do you, how's that supposed to work? It brings up a bunch of questions like, um, what about the free will of man? Or, or do we truly have a choice in the matter? Or it's like, it's like I've heard before, no, we're, or, or are we just robots? Um, we're going to accept Jesus at some point inevitably just because God wills it. Uh, it, it. It brings up the question of, is God really sovereign? And if he is, just how sovereign is God? It brings up the question of, what's my role in salvation? And what's my role in leading others to Jesus in light of the sovereignty of God? How could God choose, excuse me, how could God both choose us before the foundation of the world and at the same time give us a choice in whether or not we're going to follow him? And I'll tell you that for hundreds of years, people have been debating this and they've been wrestling with these questions and many more questions that I didn't mention here. There's this American pastor that lived back during the 1800s by the name of John Brodus, and, and he was writing about this topic one time, and he said, in essence, we, we have to remember this. He says, it's almost like we're looking at a house, and it doesn't matter where you're standing around the house, you will never see the other side of the house. I could be standing on one corner of this house, okay, and I see two sides of the house, but I can't see the other two sides. Or I could be standing in front of the house, and I see just the front of the house, but I can't see the other three sides of the house. Does that mean that the other side of the house doesn't exist? No. We know that it exists. In fact, if we reposition ourselves, we can see the other side of the house. It just means that in the moment, we cannot see the other side of the house. If you put somebody, however, let's just say we put them in a helicopter. They're hovering above the house. They look down. They can see all four sides of the house, can't they? It's the same way with us today. 
There's no point in which we can see more than half of the issue, but we have a creator who can see the whole picture all at one time. We know that the other side of the house exists. And like I said, if we reposition ourselves, we can see the other side of the house. But God is the only one who can see the whole picture. He can see the whole house. And that's a beautiful thing, to know that he does. I'll also tell you as we, as, we t- uh, as we talk about this that there is no topic in Christianity that is more divisive than this one, comparing the, the sovereignty of God with the free will of man. In fact, years ago as, a, as an RA on, on the dorm, my college dorm, um, late one evening I was getting ready for, for bed, and I heard the unmistakable sounds of a fight down the hall. And, and you can tell when it's a fight, okay? <laughs> you can just tell. And inevitably, every single time there's a fight, there's a group of guys who gather around to watch the fight. They're not getting involved, but they're watching it. And sure enough, I run down the hall. I have to break my way through the circle of guys watching, and I break up the two guys who are fighting. And, and their disagreement was, and you can probably guess it, one was convinced that the five points of Calvinism should have been included as an appendix in the Bible, all right? The other guy was so convinced about the ultimate and absolute free will of man that they're willing to come to blows over this thing. And maybe you've heard conversations or arguments or maybe even fights similar to that where people are arguing about it. But here's the reality. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes this passage of Scripture, but not to divide the church. In fact, one of the main themes of the book of Ephesians is unity in the church. He wrote Ephesians chapter 1 because he had received a revelation from Jesus that he was then to give to the church, and this is a part of that revelation. Now, as a church, we believe in the inerrancy of of Scripture, okay? There's not one part that we embrace and another part that we cast out, ever. We believe in the totality, the, the, the inerrancy of Scripture, That means that we take passages like this one and we study it and we apply it just like we do any other passage in the entire Bible. So when I read that in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons according to the purpose of his will, in other words, because he wanted to, that was a part of his will, then that's what I'm going to believe. You say, well, how do you justify that with the rest of God's word? And I'll tell you, I, I personally don't have to because God's word itself justifies itself and it explains itself. And in the things that God chooses to keep secret, I'm going to trust him. So, I'm going to believe God when I read from his word, these words from Jesus. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him, from John 6, 44. But I'm also going to believe the words from Revelation 22, 17. And this is a paraphrase. When Jesus says, whosoever wills may come. The context there, he's talking about whoever wants to, whoever thirst may come to me is what he's saying. I know that God has both predestined some for adoption before the foundation of the world, and I see in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Did you catch that? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I see Paul in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 say, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 
He continues, here's how we know that he's chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. But listen, I read that, and I'm also going to listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 11:28 when he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here's what I'm getting at, and it's a repeat statement from, from before. There are some things about God that we would never truly be able to understand, but that's okay. But that's okay. And that's part of the beauty of our God. I don't want a God that I can put in a box or fully understand because I would get bored with a God like that. I'd much rather have a God who is so much greater than I am that I spend the rest of my life figuring out and learning just as much as I don't know about him. I was with a, a retired pastor this past week, and um, a man that I would say is one of, the, one of the people that probably walks closer with Jesus than just about anybody I've ever met before. You know what this man told me? I told him I was preaching on this topic today, and he said, he said yeah. He said, you know what? The, the longer I, I live as a believer... The more I learn about God, the more I learn I don't know God, truly. He said, that's okay. As we continue reading in Ephesians 1, here's what we find in verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. All of this so far to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, he is to be praised for this. Now, when we read and we, t- we study a topic such as election and such as predestination, it's going to produce in us one of two responses. It's inevitable. We're going to respond in one of two ways. Either we're going to be filled with an indignation towards God, where we say things like, God, how can you do such a thing? And how, how, what are you thinking in this? Or, or, God, are you really good and merciful and righteous? Or are you a vengeful, hateful, cruel God? Or we're going to be filled with gratefulness and praise towards God. That's it. It's going to be one of those two responses. And we have a choice about which one of those responses is going to be. Now, what's Paul's response? Verse 6, we find it to the praise of his glorious grace. So Paul's decision is to be filled with gratitude and to be filled with with praise for God because God has seen fit to redeem and to save him. So he launches out in this excitement about God. And you can just imagine he's going along and all of a sudden, to the praise of his glorious grace, right? You can can, can hear it in in the words there. My God is awesome. My God is, is worthy of praise because he has given me salvation as a gift when I didn't deserve it. He continues in verse 6, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The beloved is talking about Jesus there. So this blessing of great grace of salvation has come through what Jesus has done. It's not because of anything that I did. In fact, as you read this passage of scripture, not a single time do you see any responsibility of man. Not a single time. It is all, here's what God has done. Here is what God is doing. All because of of God. Paul's proclaiming we have been saved because our God loves us and he is to be praised for it. And here's something else I want to show you about this passage. Verse 4. There we find the role that God plays in salvation. Okay? He chose us before the foundation of the world. He put this whole plan together. 
Verse 7, you find the role that Jesus plays in salvation. He gave his life to redeem us. He paid the price that we could never pay for the sin that had enslaved us. Jesus is the one who makes access to God possible. And without Jesus, there is no relationship with God. But then you jump down to verse 13 and 14, and here's what we find. In him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Here's what he's saying. God planned your salvation. He put it all together. Jesus is the redeeming Savior. He's the one that makes it possible. The Holy Spirit is the one that seals, protects. When something is airtight, that means that nothing can get into whatever it is inside. It was think, let's just think jar, okay? Just think jar. A jar is airtight. Nothing can get in, nothing can get out. Your salvation is sealed in the Holy Spirit. And it is sealed all the way up until we get our inheritance one day. It's guaranteed. We're going to talk more about this idea of the inheritance next week. But you get the idea. The role of the, Holy, of the triune God in salvation. God the Father planned it. God the Son is the redeeming Savior. God the Holy Spirit seals the believer. And here's something else we're going to learn as we go through the book of Ephesians. Paul is very clear all through Ephesians to include the triune God, the Trinity, throughout all that he has to say in the book of Ephesians. So we're going to see over and over again the role of the Father, the role of the Son, and the role of the Holy Spirit. This is the first time we see a clear picture of it. It's right here in Ephesians chapter 1. Now here's what I want to do to, to kind of close our time out. Okay, I want to tell a story here for just a moment that communicates the love that God our Father has for us. There was this man who was super close with God. In fact, he was faithful to follow whatever God told him to do. His life was not an easy life, however. In fact, a lot of people would characterize it as a very difficult life. You see, this man had a wife who was constantly unfaithful to him. And it wasn't even a secret. Everybody knew that this man's wife ran around with multiple other men. Because of the way that she had treated him, uh, the man had every single right to leave her. In fact, there is nobody who would have thought twice about him ending their marriage because of her unfaithfulness. He couldn't even be sure that their children belonged to him. But God would not let him end the marriage. He wouldn't let him do it. The marriage only got worse rather than better. In fact, there came a point in which she got mixed up with some really bad company, and she was sold off. She was to be sold off as a slave. Now, most people would, would, would see, okay, well, now's the perfect time for this guy to dissolve his marriage. But here's the kicker. God still would not allow him to dissolve the marriage. In fact, God told the man to go buy his wife from the slave owner. Now, most people would, 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 would think, think about that and, and think, that doesn't make sense at all. Because why would this man spend good, hard-earned money buying something that was already his? However, he obeyed God. He bought her off the slave market, once again proving his faithfulness for his wife. Now, if this story sounds familiar, it should. It's the Old Testament story of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea was a faithful husband. 
Gomer was an unfaithful wife. Hosea and Gomer's story is the story of God and Israel. It's also our story. When we, like Gomer, were enslaved, God bought us back. When we found ourselves stuck in chains, God freed us. When we, by our very nature, threw God's love away, he redeemed us. When Hosea bought Gomer back, he did so. He paid 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. When God redeemed us, he paid the ultimate price with the blood of his son. Gomer did not deserve to be redeemed. Her behavior did not merit such mercy. Israel did not deserve God's faithfulness. Their unfaithfulness did not merit such mercy. You and I do not deserve salvation. Our sin does not merit such mercy. But God loves us with a never-stopping, never-ending kind of love. And he chose to show us his mercy. Amen. What I want to ask is that all of you bow your heads, both here and at home, bow your heads for just a moment. One of the great things, if not the greatest thing in this world, is the mercy that God shows us. And that while we were yet sinners, He loved us. Christ died for us. If you were here this morning and there has never been a time in which you placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, then can I invite you to come to him today? If you were enslaved, God will buy you back. If you are lost, God will find you. If you are ashamed, God will cover you. If you wander off, God will bring you home. If you give up on him, God will not give up on you. No matter where you are, God sees who you are and he loves you. He always has and he always will. And nothing will ever change that. His word is clear that he wants a personal relationship with you. Our God is sovereign. And... He gives us a choice. It's difficult to reconcile that sometimes, difficult to understand that sometimes, but the reality is that's exactly what happens. And today, if you would like to have a relationship with Jesus and you don't already, then can I challenge you to come to him? All you have to do is believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is who he says he is. Repent of your sins, so turn away from your sin And give your life to Jesus. Say, my life is yours, God. You do what you want. 